Hi there, my friends. You're listening to Robert Miller. Follow your dreams. It's a pleasure to be with you. And this is Peter Yarrow of Peter, Paul, and Mary. Puff the Magic Dragon. You heard it right. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast with listeners in 199 countries. I'm Robert Miller, your host. My guest today is Jesse Colin Young, who had a massive hit in the 60s with the song Get Together by his band, The Youngbloods. That song became synonymous with the 60s counterculture movement and the Woodstock generation. He is considered a pioneer of American roots music, and in the years since The Youngbloods, He's released many solo albums. He's an acclaimed songwriter, singer, and instrumentalist. And in the middle of this episode, as I do with all my musician guests, Jesse and I are going to do a song fest where we're going to play a handful of his best works, and we're going to talk about them, and you'll get the backstories, and nobody else does this in podcasts. And you know I like to feature a song of mine in each episode underneath the introduction and at the end, and I always try to make the song relevant somehow to my guest or the subject matter. And in this instance, I chose the song that I wrote called Trippin' from the album of the same name. This is the album that we put out by my band Project Grand Slam that went to number one on Billboard. Why did I choose that song? Well, when Jesse recorded Get Together, there were a whole lot of kids in the Woodstock generation who were tripping. So I figured that worked here. (laughs) Jesse Colin Young, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast, baby. Thank you, Robert. My pleasure. You know, when I think back on this, I came of age musically in the 60s. Okay, so when you were hitting the top, that was my era. I can't think of a single song that better represented the whole Woodstock generation than your song, Get Together. I mean, it was the peace and love anthem, wasn't it? It was. It still is. It just, peace is not as popular these days. (laughs) Unfortunately. Yeah, unfortunately. But it was like the right song at the right time. Yeah, and I mean, that was just something that happened. You know, it happened because I was following my dream. There you go. Did you always want to be a musician? Well, I guess everybody in my family was a musician, but no professionals before me. My father played the piano, classical piano, and then he played a lot of funny stuff that we sang as kids. And my mother was a violinist and had a beautiful, had a beautiful voice, which I think has come down the generations to my daughter, Jazzy, who is now just released, Jazzy Young, just released her second LP, kind of as we speak, at the same time. Great. And there was me, oh, and my sister, who was a wonderful singer, and there was no radio in the car. My dad was an accountant and very thrifty. So since he wasn't driving long distances, he thought, I'll skip the radio. 
So he saved a few dollars on the radio, huh? Yeah, so we sang and we sang and we sang and we sang um, whenever we traveled in the car, my sister and I and my mother. And uh, dad usually concentrated on driving. All right. If he was an accountant, he probably was not too happy about the fact that you became a musician. Am I right? This is true. I think he worried. I remember when I... I transferred in 1962 after dropping out of Ohio State for a year and, and working in a factory. I don't know why I did that. Um, I transferred to NYU and I didn't know what was going on in the village. When I was a kid, I was raised in New York, but I never heard about the village. My mother was taking me to the opera and things like that. And, uh, and You didn't uh, go into 48th Street and all the music stores and everything? Oh, yeah. I mean, I was friends with all those guys, but there I am on Washington Square. That NYU building is right on the square. And I'm right. noticing these kind of scruffy looking people and toward not in the morning so much, but toward noon and then the evening, the instruments began to show up. I mean, so I spent the year playing the guitar and looking out the window and thinking like, what am I doing here studying French lit? I I need to be out there. So at the end of that year, that's where I was. So you went down to Washington Square Park, huh? Yeah. I I, I was living uh, already living on the Lower East Side. So I started playing in the basket houses. Yeah. And that was the beginning. I don't know if somebody saw me there. But, uh, you know, without my sister's connection to CBS News, I, I, maybe I wouldn't have had a, the same career. So that's how it happened? You went from CBS News and you got a, you got a record audition? Is that it? Yeah, well, I auditioned with Bobby Scott, who was a wonderful songwriter, wrote Taste of Honey, um, a great young jazz pianist who was working for Bobby Darren in his... I guess it was a publishing company. And yeah, I went in there with my guitar and because somebody, an older man at CBS, whose name I can't remember at this point, said, I know who would love your stuff, Bobby Scott. And he sent me to Bobby. And uh, I played a couple, of, I played three or four songs for him. I can't remember, didn't have a demo. <clears throat> I just played live. And he smiled and said to me, wow, you are so ignorant. And then he laughed and said, I love it. We've got to record you before you learn how to do this the way the rest of us do it, because you've come up with this strange and wonderful, your own way of one verse being 13 and a half bars, the next one, nine and a half. And, and uh, that was what he was talking about. And me, I was playing by myself. I had no idea. I never studied music. I just listened to a lot of music and played it all by ear. So I wasn't counting bars. I had no drummer. <clears throat> yeah, so, and that's how it happened. A, a week later, we were in the studio and the uh, A&R Studios, I think, which is still on 48th Street or somewhere in Midtown, still open 24 hours a day. You know what's so interesting? that you had a live audition 
And back in that day, I can think of a handful of musicians. Dylan was another one with John Hammond, who was brought into an office and basically said, okay, play. And, you know, they that was the way people got auditioned then. I don't think that happens anymore. But no. that must have been pretty frightening, wasn't it? <laughs> to play live in front of a guy like that? I was I was nervous, but um but you know, I had had such a nice reaction from uh, the man at at CBS who had a jazz pianist as a son, and um, that I was a little less when I went to see Bobby. I mean, I came in there. It wasn't a cold thing with somebody recommending me. It worked. It worked. So a week later, there I am at A and R, walking to A and R Studios. He said, "How you doing, kid?" I mean, he's only nine years older than me, but experience wise, he. As a musician, and I said, I'm a little nervous, but you know, I'm ready. I'm ready. He said, Well, go sit over there in that stool in front of that mic and play everything you know. And that's what I did. And four hours later, I had my first album, Soul of a City Boy. Isn't that interesting? And he had it, it was all done. He had picked the songs, he had uh, put them in order, and had him cut, you know, a one-off, but I didn't get to have that. That was for Darren, but the record was done. That was amazing. Now, what year is this? This is probably 1963. All right. Because, you know, you're associated in so many people's minds with San Francisco mm -hmm. and that whole scene out there, but you're basically saying you got started in Greenwich Village in New York. So when did you make the move out there, or did you not make the move out there? Yeah, we, um, well, I had to make two folk albums, Soul of a City Boy and uh, Youngblood was the second one. And then I started playing with a fella, uh, Jerry Corbett, and he was part of the, he was part of the Boston folk scene. And actually, there were more, so many more places to play in Boston. I played as a folk singer, so much more in New England than I did in New York. There were only two or three clubs that paid in the village. You ever play at the Cafe Wa? I never played at the Wa, no. <laughs> what about the Bitter End? You must have played there. Yes, absolutely. And two others that I played at more often that I cannot remember the name of, but none of them paid anything. And uh, of course, it was, you know, you play. And passed the hat. It was indoor busking. All right. So tell me about San Francisco. When did you get out there? So Corbin and I, he started showing up at my gigs. We we played together at his house. I ended up uh, staying with him when I was in Boston. And it was good right from the beginning. His voice, that beautiful baritone of his, just kind of like... And he could harmonize, you know, without even thinking about it. That's not something I was ever very good at. And he played harmonica and he played 12 string. And after about 10 times of him showing up at my gigs and me teaching him more of my material each time I would visit, I said, we should play a gig together. And so we went to Winnipeg, Canada in the winter and played for two weeks in minus 25 degrees. <laughs> and um, 
that was the beginning of the Young Bloods. We came back from that, and we kind of looked at each other and said, we should have a band. And he knew Banana. Um, Banana lived right down the street from him, and Banana was part of the folk scene. And this drummer from Memphis had just moved into Banana's building. That turned out to be Joe Bauer. And I mean, in, in the folk scene, there weren't that many drummers. No other drummers that I knew of. So this is kind of from Corbett's friends. We put the band together. And uh, eventually, Jim Mayers, who I actually taught to play bass, even though I really didn't know how to play bass yet. Um, he played bass with us for maybe six months or a year. And then I finally, we, we tried to get Felix Papillardi, um, we tried to get Harvey Brooks to join the Young Bloods. And then I finally said, uh, well, we had three guitar players and I was one of them. And the other guys were more experienced with uh, electric guitars. So I said, I'll be the bass player. So I went out to Gretchen and bought a, uh, who had um, taken care of me as an artist with my folk guitars and, and bought a bass and learned to play while we were and learned to play in the midst of actually performing a lot for probably a year at the Cafe of Gogo. And then we went to June 15th, 1967. We, we flew in to play the Avalon Ballroom for the first time. In San Francisco. Yeah, in San Francisco. And we were just blown away by the love coming off the crowd. It was a big crowd for us. And um, that was not happening in New York. People weren't, they, they weren't there yet. They weren't in the get-together place. Yeah. In San Francisco, everyone on the street, you know, under 70 was smiling at each other. And, uh, you know, I'm a New Yorker. <laughs> I, I thought it was kind of strange at first, but I learned to love it. It was such a new experience. You were also there in 67. That was Summer of Love, right? Yes. That was the Summer of Love. See, my problem was I went on a trip out west with my parents. I'm I'm younger than you are. So I hit San Francisco in 66, and that was the wrong year to be there because it hadn't morphed into what you're talking about in 67. I was too young anyway, but that became the focal point. It's so interesting. You, you were a New York guy that played folk music, and yet you got associated with, you know, being a, a not a rocker, but, you know, a, 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 an artist that played electric music in San Francisco. Yeah. Hi, everybody. This is Robert Miller. Live at Steel Stacks is the new five-song EP by my band, Project Grand Slam. It absolutely captures the band at the top of our game. Musicians and reviewers alike have praised the recording, saying things like, captivating music, Project Grand Slam burns down the house, virtuoso musicians, and such a great band. You can stream live at Steel Stacks on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, or any of the other streaming platforms. 
and you can download it from the PGS store. The links are all in the show notes to this episode. Please subscribe to this podcast if you haven't done so yet. You can do so and you can listen to our 100 plus episodes just by going to our website at followyourdreampodcast.com. So join me each episode as we go on a world tour to my listeners in 200 countries. I want to thank you for listening and keep on rocking. All right. I want to go to the second part of our interview because I want to get to some of the songs. Sure. We're going to start playing Get Together, which, you know, again, one of the great songs of the 60s. You can make the mountains ring or make the angels cry. Those are birdies on the wing and you may not know why. Come on, people now. Smile on your brother, everybody get together. And what I was interested in initially, I want to ask you about this. I know it wasn't written by you guys. It was written by a guy named Chester Powers, who also called himself Dino Valenti. Right. And he was with Quicksilver Messenger Service, one of the great bands of San Francisco. So how did you get to that song? Yeah, get together. Well, that's a song that changed my life. Um, we were playing at the Go-Go. And we, you know, I think they paid us 20 bucks a night and we would open for whomever she, I got to open for Muddy Waters, one of my heroes, but we could have free rehearsal time with monitors. And that was a, that was a big deal. We didn't have any money to rent a rehearsal space really. So one Sunday afternoon, I'm walking back from my favorite empanada stand on McDougal street to the Lower East side where Rents were a lot cheaper, and that's where we lived. And I passed the go-go, and I thought, you know, it's Sunday. It's probably dark. And uh, I'll call the guys, and we can rehearse. So I went down the first flight of stairs, and I heard some music. And I thought, oh, God, maybe they got, a, they got something going on. And usually, I was very focused on, because I was learning to play the bass while performing. And um, I spent a lot of time rehearsing. I would have usually turned around and gone home. But for some reason, I went down the second flight of stairs. And I pushed open the, the beads. And, uh, and, and there was Buzzy Landhart singing Get Together. And um, you know how the movies about the Bible, <laughs> that the the sky opens up or maybe the red sea parted huh? parting the sea and that's what happened to me i saw my life change that and i saw that song as that i rushed backstage and asked him uh ask buzzy i had just introduced myself and asked him to write the lyrics out for me i mean i think i had the tune in my head and whatever i didn't have in my head i noticed when i heard dino sing it later that the tune changed a little, but what? And I took it to, into rehearsal 
the next day with the young bloods and yeah all right let me understand this so buzzy linhart is playing at the uh, go-go you walk in you hear him singing it is it the same basic arrangement as you used yes and where did he get the song from did he get it directly from dino valenti yeah that was 1966 dino had already left for san francisco but he left that song there and everyone knew it except me <laughs> did he ever record the song dino valenti well there are recordings of it but i don't i don't know whether he he never did it with quicksilver i don't think maybe because the young buds hit with it so so quickly and uh but we were actually late in the game. I mean, the Kingston Trio recorded it really? three or four years before that. And the airplane, I don't know whether theirs was. Anyway, our version, which came from me and my memory of what Buzzy had done and my the bass intro, because I was playing bass at the time. Yeah, I, I loved that song. I still love it. It's like... Uh, it's like a beating heart. And uh, everyone in the band seemed to approach it. You know, it was a five-minute song. So we, we didn't even have to consider it as a single. To be a single, it had to be three minutes. And um, so it was an art piece. It was a beautiful song that we wanted to record. And we're not trying, we weren't trying to make a hit out of it. Yeah. But you know what happened so did you edit it down or did the record company edit it down or what yes when they took it down to i think three and a half minutes but as soon as it became a hit everyone played the five minute version isn't that interesting all right tell me this though i seem to remember watching video of you playing guitar on that song now did you did you play guitar and it, who did the the guitar part and the solo on that on your record yeah no you never saw me play get together well i mean certainly after the after the young bloods were over i was playing guitar and maybe and toward the end of the young bloods um i went back to guitar but mo almost all of that maybe the last year but so maybe that's what you saw at that point but no i was the bass player and all right banana played the solo and but he but that sound came from corbett's 12 string and banana playing together it's a beautiful it's a beautiful sound yeah it, it is a beautiful sound it just you know there are certain songs that capture an era okay that mm -hmm. song captured that whole era that whole 67 era if you will and I, I call it the Woodstock generation because that's, you know, you hear that song, you think back immediately to what was happening at that time. And, uh, you know, you you can't replicate things like that. You can't plan for things like that, right? They, it just happens. You know it was released twice. Tell me. Um, first in 1967 <laughs> and the Summer of Love, we walked into, that's why the Avalon Ballroom was full. We had a hit record on the radio in San Francisco, but mostly North Coast and nowhere else in the country. But in San Francisco, it was all over the radio. And um, that's why we moved there. I mean, we saw we can work here. 
I mean, we might be able to support ourselves. So we went home, finished Earth Music, which second Youngblood album, and all of us packed up and moved to Point Reyes, which is, you know, about 35 miles north of San Francisco. We just, I think we all decided it's so beautiful out there that, you know, after five or six years on the Lower East Side, we should take a breather and <laughs> and try the country. And uh, yeah, what a move. That... Let's go to the second song. This was kind of your follow-up hit, Darkness, Darkness. Darkness, darkness, be my pillow. Take my hand and let me sleep in the coolness of your shadow, in the silence of your deep darkness, darkness, hide my yearning for the things that cannot be, keep my mind from constant turn. Lovely song. Tell me a little bit about that. Darkness was the last song I wrote in New York. And I remember sitting in my kitchen at night. And the sun's going down. Months before, I had had a terrifying acid trip. And that was still with me. And then I had my first friend um, killed in Vietnam. I found out about it. And I was thinking about him and I was thinking, God, what it, what must it be like to have the sun going down and most of the war was fought at night and getting ready to go out and fight the war in the jungle? And I thought, terror, you think you felt frightened. And yet they go ahead and do it. That was the beginning of darkness, darkness. Yeah, it had that feeling about it. So I'm not surprised to hear that story. All right, let's go on to the next one. This is Before You Came. I dreamed that I was riding in a South Dakota field. And the sweet grass whispered to me as I rode. Oh, the sun, it was at midday. It shone hot across my face. And our land lay still in grace. Yes, a crystal silent place before you came. Tell us your recollections about this one. Yeah. Well, it was 1975, I think. I had a motorhome at that time, and we had finished the tour. This is with the, not the Youngbloods, but the Jesse Collin Young Band, beautiful sax player who played with us. Um, and I sent the band home and was driving home with my kids and my, my ex. And this was the year of Wounded Knee, the, um, when the FBI, um, I mean, had a shootout with some of the uh, Indian tribe. Yeah, people from the uh, 
<clears throat> from AIM and uh, there on the reservation at Pine Ridge. And I thought I should go. I should wish I should go to the Black Hills. I mean, what is what's what's going on here? I want to feel it. So we drove through the Black Hills, beautiful, which once belonged to the Lakota Nation, but took taken over by gold miners. Um, but there are rocks in the in in the Black Hills that look like that look like men standing in blankets together, very reminiscent of Native Americans. And um, we went through the Pine Ridge Reservation. People said, don't go up there, man, they shoot at you. There were the shooting, there was no shooting, but just a lot of poverty there. And uh, I got home to California and the next morning I walked out on the ridge overlooking Drake's Bay. Um, and there was this huge sailing ship, a four-masted schooner in Drake's Bay. And um, I thought that I had traveled back in time and that I was a Native American seeing the first white guys land in Drake's Bay. And that began the dream. I dreamed I was riding on the South Dakota field. I had just been in South Dakota in the fields and the sweet grass whispered to me as I rode. And the sun, it was at midday, it shone hot across my face and the land lay still in grace as it did then. Yes, a crystal silent place before you came. Mm. Talking about before my ancestors came to the shores. So a very, a very emotional, meaningful song. Yeah. Terrific. All right, I'm going to slip one in on you. Grizzly bear. <laughs> when I woke up this morning, she was gone, silent gone, yes. I used to love to watch her dance that grizzly bear. I guess she's going to Frisco Rover to dance it there. Cause when I woke up this morning, yes, she was gone. I love that song. My high school band played that song. So I want to ask you about that. Yeah, Corbett wrote that. And he, um, Corbett was a master of ragtime. And this was something that he brought to the band that, that nobody else played. Banana, very, it grew up. Bluegrass, Jimmy Reed, me, I was an Elvis fan and a, and a doo-wop lover. But Corbett brought ragtime. And I think RCA tried to call that rag and roll. You know, they tried it. Rag and roll. Which it was. <laughs> That's what it was. But, um, you know, they were trying to come up with something that would uh, we, would be called branding in these days. But it, right. I don't think it stuck. But Grizzly Bear, that was our first single. And 
Corbett never explained to me where it came from, but years later, I think it's a derivative of, we heard a song recorded in 1920 that was very much like Grizzly Bear. And a lot of us were learning, we were learning old songs from, as Folkways was putting out in the early 60s, all this music recorded for the Library of Congress all over the United States, mostly in the Southeast and the Appalachian mountain chain. We were learning songs that, and pieces of songs that became other songs, you know, recorded in the 60s. And I think that's what Grizzly Bear was. Corbett taking a, a ragtime influence of an old recording and just turning it into that that beautiful song. And I sang harmony with him on that. Very, I didn't sing harmony very often because it was always hard for me and easy for him. So it was a fun song, let yeah, me tell you. Really fun. All right, Jesse, tell me what you're doing these days. These days, well, I just came back from a, a tour of the West Coast with my daughter, Jazzy, and she was playing with me. I bring her out in the middle of the show and we'd sing a couple of things together. And then she'd sing three songs, three new songs that she was just in the middle of releasing from this EP called The 27 Club. I think it is. Anyway, that's one of the songs. She just turned 27, I guess. <laughs> so Connie and I drove from, uh, we're in South Carolina. We drove all the way to LA, uh, rehearsed for a week with Jazzy. And then we went up to this little town, almost to the Canadian border. I can't remember the name of it, but there's a lovely theater there. And we started playing and we got as far as San Francisco. And then we got COVID. Actually, at a show where all the family, um, my older kids, and they all wanted to see Jazzy play with me. And <laughs> maybe one of the servers or something gave us all COVID. But not the, it wasn't terrible, but it kind of put an end to the tour. So yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, before that, but I would play in solo. I, I, I got into solo during COVID, just like. Um, it affected you and, and um, brought you to this podcast. I started on the first night of like stay at home. I'm looking at Connie and saying, well, we're not going to dinner. She said, go get your guitar and, and play Sugar Babe. And I'll just take a little, you know, a, a phone video and we'll put it up on your Facebook. But a lot of people are feeling kind of weird about this. Um, staying at home four or five days a week for the next three or four months. Yeah. Yeah, it was the way, way of contributing and helping. And at the same time, I mean, it kept us busy and we had a lot of time. So I would spend a whole day, for, for a lot, most of these songs were written for bands and I had never played them solo. So I would spend a whole day working out a solo arrangement and by, Four or five in the afternoon, Connie would come in with the phone, and and uh, you do the video, huh? Yeah, did, did a couple takes and took the best one and put it up. Yeah, so that was what what call them one song at a time. 
and uh, yeah, and I started to fall in love with Solo, which is where I started. Solo the City Boy, my first album, is the only solo record I ever made until the fall after that I made uh, Highway Troubadour, which was a solo record and came out of months of playing solo on Facebook and hopefully helping people out with the, the, the strange and the weirdness uh, of COVID and um, getting me back into solo playing. Good for you. Well, you've had quite a trip, okay, from Greenwich Village and the folk scene to the heights of Get Together in San Francisco, and then everything you've been doing since then and playing with your daughter, all very cool. We have been speaking here with Jesse Colin Young, who played with the Young Bloods and became famous at that time. Jesse, I want to thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's been really a lot of fun to have you here. My pleasure. It was fun doing it. Thanks for And now we're going to play that song that uh, I started out playing underneath the introduction. It's my song called Trippin'. I want to thank you all for listening, and we will see you in the next episode. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at thepgsstore.com. Thank you.